Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight, a production of Forum Communications. My name is James Walner. This is episode 14 of A Better Search for Barbara Cotton. Let's face it, we've had 13 pretty darn heavy episodes of Barbara Cotton in the last few weeks. This episode is going to be lighter. This time we're going to talk music and Barbara Cotton with two musicians, Lily Trefilio of the Chicago band Beach Bunny and Isaac Turner, whose music you've heard throughout this whole season. After that, we're heading to the North Dakota State Archives in Bismarck. I've got some news to share about the podcast. Before all that, though, I do have some Barbara updates. First off, I've been in correspondence with the Williston Police Department, specifically Detective Dan Deary. You may recall that last time I said I felt I needed to share some information, a tip of sorts. And I just want to let you know that I've done that now, and I've been getting some very great response from Detective Deary. I feel confident that he will give my information the proper attention that he deems it deserves. I feel this lead is in good hands. Also, we are still looking for a guy nicknamed Red who may have known Stacy Werder. The story goes that this guy Red and two other men traveled to California after Stacy's suicide and they hand-delivered some of Stacy's belongings to his family near Wairica, California. The story also goes that this person, nicknamed Red, was put away in prison for 35 years for armed robbery. That's all the information I have about this guy, nicknamed Red, but maybe one of you can help. Red is not a person of interest in Barb's case, but it sure would be interesting to talk to anyone who knew Stacy Werder in Montana or North Dakota in 1981. Finally, I just want to let you know that I'm planning to visit Scobie, Montana and Malta, Montana, and I'll bring you along too, at least in your headphones. I want to see the hotel where Barbara's mother thought her daughter might have been with Stacy. I also plan on seeing the jail where Stacy took his life and hopefully speaking with some people who remember the incident. But that is for the future. For now, let's talk music and missing Barbara Cotton with some very, very cool people. I want to get this right so much for her. And I feel guilty that we didn't do enough early on. And I feel terrible that this happened to her. After that, it was, oh my goodness, my mom and my sister did not get along. My, oh, there was a lot of fighting between the two of them. She was not a runaway. Come on, it's been 40 years. Can you tell us if, like, did Louise say that they went out to eat or? Yeah, like I said, she had a big heart, but it's almost to a fault, maybe. But any extra factors that you throw in is going to make you more vulnerable. Her mom's story never did change. 
Barbara never arrived at her destination and has never been heard from again. And then we'd all be hanging out together now instead of doing a podcast about her. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. Singer and songwriter Lily Trefilio was born in 1996, and she's a front person in the band named Beach Bunny, formed in Chicago. While working on a better search for Barbara, or that is when I was not working on it and trying to get my mind off of things, I've been listening a lot to Beach Bunny. While doing so, I started hearing lyrics and in one way or another sort of reminded me of Barbara Cotton's story anyway. In her most recent work, Lily sings about girls running home from parties in the night because they are, well, scared. It sort of hit me that 40 years have passed since Barbara vanished, and I'm not quite sure how much things have even changed for her young daughters out there. And from what I can hear from Beach Bunny's music, they think things need to change. So, I shot an email to Beach Bunny's PR person and basically said, Hey, I know this sounds weird. We're looking for a missing 15-year-old girl, and I'd like to talk to Lily about her work. Turns out Lily is a big true crime fan, and I feel she's an advocate of sorts for the safety of young women, and to my delight, she accepted to speak with us on a better search for Barbara Cotton. Lily Trefilio, thank you so much for joining us on A Better Search for Barbara Cotton and the Dakota Spotlight podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Where are you talking to us from today, and what's your day been like so far, and what are you up to these days? Um, Well, today uh, we're in the studio, um, and we just kind of started setting up equipment and stuff, so haven't really jumped into anything yet um, and got some sandwiches. So (laughs) pretty good morning so far. I will be seeing you live in uh, November. Are you excited about this tour? Super stoked. It's going to be surreal being back in like a venue. Because you guys were just kind of taken off, I think, and then the COVID hit. Is that sort of accurate? Yeah, I'd say so. It was like a album release and then everything was put on pause. I don't always watch Jimmy Fallon, but I definitely tuned in uh, Friday before last, saw you guys, and, and then you posted on Twitter afterwards. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but something like it was sort of a dream come true, maybe. Is that accurate? Or how was that experience? Yeah, no, it was very, very surreal. Um, And I feel like uh, TV is definitely like the next step um, in, you know, bucket list kind of goals. And especially like, I don't know, I think uh, seeing Jimmy Fallon not only play our little video, but talk about that stuff is really cool. So to sort of introduce you to my listeners, is it fair to say that this is that five years ago, approximately, you were sitting in your room writing a song, and then about five, six years later, you're on Jimmy Fallon, Rolling Stone magazine is writing about you and your band, Beach Bunny, (laughs) and you have a European and US tour in the works. Is that a fair boiled down account of your story thus far? Or how would you describe it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's definitely the the timeline so far um yeah i mean i just started solo a few years later met bandmates and it's just crazy how things have progressed 
I'm wondering, if we go back to that day when you were writing that first song, did you have any idea or thought in your wildest imagination that this would be go- happen in five years? Or were you maybe very goal-oriented and you totally saw it? You know, it was still kind of a, more of just like a hobby and a, and a passion project more than anything. You know, I was in college when I was writing that song, but especially like Fallon or all these fests that were getting added to. Um, yeah, never expected that. Very great. I'm very, very grateful for that. You write better when you're sad or happy, or can you tell us anything about your writing process? Yeah, I think that's definitely, it's easier to write with uh, any greater intense emotion than I think if I'm in a neutral state, which was kind of difficult during the pandemic because we were sort of thrown into months and months of boredom. So I wasn't really feeling um, super happy or super sad. It was just kind of neutral. Um, But I think in a lot of ways, songwriting can be very therapeutic in the sad moments and kind of capture a memory or a feeling in the happy moments. I assume you get a lot of uh, interview requests. Why did you choose to accept this one from Dakota Spotlight Podcast, A Better Search for Missing Barbara Cotton, which is sort of a true crime podcast? Um, It's so tragic and, and awful to hear stories like this where people just vanish and if there's no um, body even, we can't even get closure on that or anything. Can't imagine. So when we got this request, I was like, I'm very thrilled to be on this. Because I think I heard you again on another interview talking about songwriting, that writing a song is a little bit like solving a puzzle or something. That's what we're doing here on this podcast is trying to solve a mystery. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that is funny you say that. Um, Totally, though. I think uh, I'm sure every songwriter has their own methods, but for me, it usually is like um, a bunch of pieces. And then in my head, I'm trying to see what part fits the chorus, what part fits the verse. And um, like, I'll just write a bunch of lyrics out and kind of rearrange them until the order feels like it clicks just right, um, instead of going in like sequential. In Beach Bunny's 2020 album titled Honeymoon, Lily wrote and sang about some pretty melancholy topics. More recently, her tone has changed, it seems. Gone is the young, heartbroken girl, and now there's some real social commentary. If Lily is still afraid of walking home at night, she's no longer okay with things being that way in our world. To me, it sounds like she wants things to change. Yeah, I feel like Honeymoon, in a lot of ways, uh, as much as it's kind of a breakup album, was also... I was definitely in like a more toxic situation. And then I think blame game was almost reflecting on that toxic. I feel, I feel like blame game really was the result of um, the pandemic in a lot of ways, because it gave so much space to sort of reflect and, and think about, um, I don't know, maybe past relationships or just past friendships, um, past circumstances. I, I went through this period of like really deep uh, anger, I guess, that I had, not really reflected on before um, when reflecting upon all of these circumstances. I feel like in a lot of ways, those songs kind of almost wrote themselves because I was just trying to get all the thoughts out of my head uh, and sort of like process that anger. So I've dedicated this season to my daughters and daughters everywhere. And first of all, you are a daughter yourself. Can you share anything mm-hmm. about your parents and what do you think what do you think they would have done if you had gone missing at 15? Well, my parents 
are very uh, protective people, and my my mom is a big worrier. So um, I think growing up, even in uh, the neighborhood I did, which was a pretty safe area, they definitely brought me up in some kind of mentality of like, don't trust anyone, um, not anyone, but you know, be very cautious when you're walking home. Um, have pepper spray on you all, all the work, which maybe is partially why my true crime fascination um, kind of developed just because, you know, kind of brought up in, in that cautious environment. Um, and yeah, I mean, they're wonderful people. And I, I know if anything like that happens, um, the search would be far and wide and, and forever and ever. I told Lily that when I listened to her music, it struck me that the same issues that existed in 1981 seem to still exist today. Her most recent work, the song Blame Game, focuses on this topic very sharply. I read some of her lyrics back to her. From Blame Game, girls run home at night when they're leaving from a party because we're raised to trust nobody. Yeah, I think I think it still um, is accurate in a lot of ways. Where I, I think there's... Um, it's a very complex issue, um, and I know even recently in the news, um, I think when there was like a recent crime, uh, you know, authorities were more leaning towards um, curfews for women rather than like how can we, you know, develop into a way where everyone feels safe. Right, and your, so your next line in that same song is. Uh... It's not right to make excuses. Teach them why they shouldn't do this instead of telling us to hide. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, uh, like you said, today's culture maybe hasn't made a lot of progress um, in areas of of that kind of education um, or just, just uh, even the mentality of like if there's one bad seed in a friend group, um, that the other people in the friend group, you know, should make sure that they're held accountable and work preventatively. Because, I mean, certainly there are some just um, evil people out there, but I think making sure that uh, people are looking out for that and trying to prevent that um, is where we need to steer. I think this is one of issues, like this is an issue that um, a lot of women face on like a very regular basis that's maybe not perceived as a super aggressive, you know, thing to do to catcall or to make comments, but it totally could escalate to more than that. I remember being in high school, you know, a mere child, um, and my friend and I would, there was a one street bar house that we would always walk to take the train and nearly every single day we'd either get yelled at or hollered at um and we were just wearing like our school uniforms i think that just further illustrates the fact that um you know i mean we were walking and we were genuinely in fear that maybe one of the cars would start slowing down or follow us have you ever stopped to think that your work might directly or indirectly sort of change the world in some way or are you more like i'm just a musician don't make more out of this than you need to uh, I think initially it was probably more the latter mindset of I was just writing about personal experiences, but I think now seeing responses constantly to things, I do think I reflect on that in the sense that uh, it, I think music can change the world in a lot of ways, and may, maybe lyrics can resonate uh, a message more clearly than 
just words alone. I agree with Lily. Words matter. Lyrics matter. I told her something that Sandy Evanson told me recently. When I told Sandy I was going to interview Lily of Beach Bunny, Sandy told me later that one of Lily's songs, titled April, really hit home with her. April is a love or a breakup song, but Sandy Evanson heard it another way. She thought of her missing friend, Barbara. Sandy also pointed out that Barbara went missing in April. I told all of this to Lily, explained Sandy's personal interpretation of Lily's song, and I read some of the lyrics back to the songwriter. Are you out there? I'm still here. I wish that when I said your name you would appear sitting next to me. Now we're memories. Sometimes I just want somebody, someone who reminds me that they'll always love me. I'm sick of counting tears, wishing you were here. Yeah, I mean, that <laughs> you just blew my mind for a second. It is really cool that someone can um, resonate and maybe like find comfort in some way, having a song that reflects what they're going through. Lily wanted to leave us with a message to Barbara Cotton's family and others. I mean, to the family, um, just like my thoughts and prayers go out, and, and I really do hope that there can be closure on the situation in the future. And just for any cold cases that, um, that uh, you know, they stay open um, and are looked into because I think every missing person deserves that. Best of luck on your tour. I'll see you in November. Or I'll be at one of your gigs. And, and keep on, please, you know, I feel like you are sort of advocating for the safety of our daughters everywhere. So just thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. That was Lily Trefilio of the band Beach Bunny. Check them out online or maybe catch them live this year in a city near you. If you've been listening to this season, you've heard a lot of music by Isaac Turner of Kalamazoo, Michigan. Today, Ike is a professor of English at Kalamazoo Valley Community College, but he grew up in North Dakota in the town of Wishick in McIntosh County. If you've listened to season two of Dakota Spotlight about the tragic 1976 murders in Zealand, Ike grew up about 30 minutes from there. Ike was recently back in North Dakota visiting family, and we got an opportunity to meet for the first time. I met up with him at the State Historical Society of North Dakota in Bismarck. The parking lot was about empty when I arrived at 9 a.m. I spotted Ike right away. He was wearing a Dakota Spotlight sweatshirt. Oh, you know, cool a band sweatshirt. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, and you know it's authentic because I have stains on it. So. <laughs> we made our way through the Heritage Center to the reading room where Emily Kabishta of the State Archives met us there and offered Ike and I a quiet place to talk. Hey, Emily. Good morning. Good morning. How's it going? Good. Great. How are you? This Good. is Ike Good. Turner. Good. Hi. Good to meet you. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. I grew up in uh, Wishick. Oh, yeah. I was just down there a couple of weeks. Ike Turner, it's a pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to meet you. Big big time. Yeah. <laughs> How did we meet? Oh, you, emailed, you listened to the Zealand story. I did. I listened to it. It was in the... Season two. Season two is in the depths of uh, COVID isolation and I was missing home and I typed into you know podcast search function North Dakota <laughs> I had I missed my folks yeah I missed home and yeah. and uh, your podcast came up and I saw Zealand and I was like oh well what is that and listened to it and it was just well it was fantastic journalism you know Thank you. you know that was that was what it caught me but then here Milton Wiest voice uh, or him on there. Oh my word! The sheriff, yeah. The sheriff. I mean, I I 
I think it's been long enough now I can say this. You know, I was an ambulance driver in Wishick. I drove him on a, a pretty gnarly uh, run one time when he was in distress. And I guess I didn't blow it because he was always very appreciative of how we treated him after that. And anytime he'd see me after that, he'd say, you got a good foot, son, you know. <laughs> if you've not listened to season two, you should really check it out. I'm going to play this short snippet that Ike was referring to, which is a newsreel from the day after the murders took place. It was in this low wooded area about two miles northeast of Zealand, where a search party late last night found the bodies of 66-year-old Wade Zick, the manager of the Zealand branch of the McIntosh County Bank, and his 65-year-old wife, Ellen. The two bodies were found against that tree over there with all of the debris in the foreground laying on top of them. Authorities theorize the two were murdered in connection with an extortion attempt to get money from the McIntosh County Bank. Mr. Zick had been manager of the bank for 35 years. On Sunday morning, friends were concerned when Mr. Zick did not appear at the Zion Lutheran Church, where he was the choir organist. The FBI theorizes the Zicks were awakened at home late Saturday night or early Sunday morning and forced to go to the bank. About $3,000 has been found missing from the bank. The FBI says the Zicks were then shotgunned to death in their pajamas. Three Zealand men are being sought. They are 22-year-old David Anthony Feist and his 18-year-old brother Sebastian, better known as Butch, and another 18-year-old whose picture appears with 1976 graduates of Zealand High School, Gregory Huber. The three were seen yesterday before APBs were put out by authorities in Casper, Wyoming. The other voice you are about to hear is McIntosh County Sheriff Milton Wiest. And tell me what this does to a community like Zealand in this McIntosh County area. Well, it's quite a blow to a community as such as this. Uh, something that people read about and think it happens elsewhere, and uh, it's quite a blow to find out when it happens in their own backyard. The banker, an upstanding member of the community? Uh, Very well-liked man of the community, yes. People here in Zealand are shocked and appalled at the Zick murders. They call it a senseless act. And now a new element, the element of fear is here. The bank's assistant manager, Francis Stribel, says, we never lived with fear before, but now there will be some. Dennis Newman reporting from Zealand. Ike Turner got interested in music a long, long time ago. Since I was a little kid, um, played the French horn a little bit, the piano a little bit, and then switched to drums when I was in seventh grade without telling my mom and dad. And uh, my mom knew I switched to drums when she saw me on stage with the pep band and I was bashing away. Uh, but it was one of those things, you know, I mean, I worked through high school and stuff, but we didn't have the money to buy a drum set. You know, that was not, my parents were public school teachers, you know. And so I um, got into drumming right away in college. I saw my first punk rock show the first day of college. And then I was playing in a band within a year. And then that was really, that was it. I've just been in bands ever since. So I asked Ike if he would tell us a little bit about several of his songs. And I started with one we've all heard. It's called Crown Shy. <laughs> I wrote this song, um, the music part of this song, as a, an attempt to make something as aesthetically pretty as I could. 
Um, I spent a, spent a lot of time making maybe not pretty music. <laughs> we tried to uh, blow people's eardrums out for many years. And then I found myself with a project um, that was, you know, something that I could help steer the vision a little bit. Uh, my band called Wowza, and I've got all these great collaborators and people who contribute. And I wrote this song as, as this idea of, of thinking of it as the kind of middle of a record, as like this really beautiful thing. So I wrote it in my mind too. When I wrote it, I was like, oh man, is that the same chord progression as Fooled Around and Fell in Love? <laughs> And he's around and fell in love. Yeah. <laughs> it's really... So when I write uh, for Wowza, I don't sing in Wowza. Um, I, or I, I've written lyrics, but I don't sing. I handed it to this uh, my friend Frankie, um, and she came back with a demo like the next day with these lyrics about being a kid and running around in the woods with your cousins and like all of this amazing stuff. We started to form this record called Crown Shy that we wanted to make. We ended up with an EP. That's a, a song called Coyotes to the South. Um, Christmas, the last Christmas I saw my mom, I saw my mom and dad. You know, that would have been 2019. My mom, over dinner, it wasn't even Christmas yet, she said, can you open your gift now? And she gave me this gift, and it was, it's called a tongue drum. A tongue drum. And I opened it, and I'm like, oh my goodness. And I saw it, and I started playing on it, and I think I cried. Like, I mean, I was just like, this is the greatest gift, you know? And I immediately went to the other room, and I wrote that song. I just literally started, I just played it. Really? Yep, and then I took it home. And I added drums, guitars, bells. I think there's another instrument on there. Um, and I was just really, really, really happy with how that turned out. I wanted to make a record of all that, of music just like that. And I, I may, may one day do that. That guitar, there's a definite sound, I, I don't know enough about music, but there's a 60s sound with that exact, yep. I don't know if it's kinks or what it is, but it's something. 100% what I was going for. Telecaster through the Vox amp, yeah, 100%. Yeah, my wife was walking, that's my wife, Melanie Crow, and she was walking around, you know, it was COVID madness type thing, right? And she was just kind of saying those words to herself, and I was like, oh, what is that? And then I said, just give me a minute. And she, you know, I went into the room and I, I honestly, I think it was about 10 minutes. I came up, I played guitars, drums, tambourine, maybe bass even. And then I gave it to her and she sang over the top of it. The whole thing was done within like a half hour. Well, the first line, I don't know what it is, but then it's uh, got a pocket full of weed and a lot of whole lot of love. A whole yeah. lot of love. <laughs> I don't think I used that in the podcast, but I know I did it over, used it in a video that I posted to Facebook or maybe, I, no, I did. I did when I was talking about Stacy Werder washing dishes at, at Cakes and Cones or oh, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I had this as sort of playing in the background on the radio.
Um, I tried really hard with that song to write a pop song, like a little a head bopping pop song. Like a, I was like, I wonder, I wonder if I can do that if I really try. Any other kind of catchy song I've ever written in the past has all been a little bent or there's been an F word in the lyrics or something. And um, this was like, no, I want Ellen legitimately trying to write a straightforward pop song. And there it was. And uh, it was one of those I was going to be, it, that was the song I was going to be for my, my other band called Out. And I just couldn't make my melody fit. Gave it to Frankie. Two days later, she comes back with this, like, you know, she's never really admitted it to me, but I'm like, this is about being in love. Like, and I even said that on stage once, and I think she kind of shot me a look, like. <laughs> but her husband was in the audience and I was like, I think it's about that guy. And, and I absolutely love it. And I'm very, very happy with the way that turned out too. Mixing that song was hard. My, my partner, Zach, mixed that record and that was really hard to mix the record, but I just am so happy with the way it came out. And I agree with you, the drums are... Finally, I asked Ike about this song, a song called Carmen. I used this song in the episode titled The Evil That Lurks when we spoke to Andy Johnson about Frank De La Pena's crimes in Wyoming. That was a heavy episode, a sad episode. As it turns out, the song has somber origins for Ike, too. It's about a former student of his who was accidentally killed by a gunshot. student named Carmen. She was a non-traditional student. That means, you know, older than, I think we used to say older than average, but um, she was an absolute pain in my neck. I had her for a few classes, challenged me at every po moment, but, you know, was late to class every day. And I absolutely loved her. I thought she was fantastic. She had been through the ringer in her life um, in ways that many of us could never imagine, ever, could never imagine. Uh, Carmen was shot by her son uh, last year. Um, it was a mistake, it was an accident. He was looking at a gun he had just acquired and shot Carmen. Um, she, died. she died, she died immediately. Um, and it was terrible, it was terrible. And I really liked her a lot. Now, and I can't imagine if she made that impact on me about her, think about her family, think about her son, you know. And in, when that happened, I was putting this record together. This is a group I have called the Hollis Group. I write the songs and I send them to my friend Neil and then um, gave one to my friend Lily to put some vocals on. Neil adds things to it and he mixes things and he added so much to this song, uh, little guitar things. I used, I based this one around a drum machine uh, app that I got and I played regular drums over the top of it too. And I, I'm proud of that record. I really like it. I, I think the next record we do is going to be a little different. Uh, but I really enjoy that album a lot. Let's talk a little bit about Barbara Cotton. Where, what are your thoughts? Uh, we're at episode 14 now, I think. Mm -hmm. um, what are your thoughts about the story sort of in a boiled down? Yeah, it was very, it's very confusing to me. Um, I 
I just can't help but think that De La Pena has something to do with this. I don't, I can't, I can't settle on if this was like a uh, party gone wrong, if this was just pure malevolence. <laughs> yeah. It is, you know, it just feels so bad for her family. I mean, yeah. they're just yeah. suffering. And her, you know, you know, honestly, her older brother, you know, the dude who only ate raw meat and was into hunting and seems like an eccentric guy. There's no, there's no, there's nothing wrong with being eccentric. Um, yeah, I can't help, you know, her friend, Sandy. I think about Sandy a lot, actually. You know, that is a seemingly, you know, fastball of a human being, does her job, does her work, and misses her friend and wants some answers for her friend. And I just, I think of Sandy a lot when I listen to the podcast because she just seems like, like if there's a beating, I mean, you, of course, but if there's a, she's the beating heart there, you know? You know, I just really, I really respect her. That is, uh, I suppose, where I come away with. So, it's been a real pleasure to meet you. Finally, I turn to thank for meeting me here at the Heritage Center in Bismarck, North Dakota. Just as a sign, this is important for me to have met at the Heritage Center. This place set my watch. I, I got, a, I have a degree in history, and this place set my watch on that in many ways. We we came here every year, a couple times a year. My dad is a history teacher too, and he would. I mean, I'm an English professor now, but I was a history teacher then, uh, or a history buff. And um, just him showing me everything, th this is an important place for me in my memory. So when you mentioned meeting here, I was just like, whoa. So thank you. Well, thank you. Let's go get a coffee, shall we? That sounds great. Cool. You ever get lost here? No, I used to. After my coffee with Ike, I met up with Emily Kabishta of the North Dakota State Archives. It's a big building and there's a lot of departments and places to get mixed around, I think. It's sort of like Christmas coming to work because I never really know who will be coming in with donations or what will be mailed to me. Um, I feel really fortunate that I get to come here and work every day at the State Archives. Can you just tell us a little bit more about what the state archives are? So when you watch the History Channel and you see people with white gloves handling documents, that's us. We're the state repository for the records of North Dakota state and local government. Uh, and in addition to that, we collect private manuscript, photo, audio, visual, visual collections. So we try to document the history of North Dakota and its people. We have a variety of different collections and formats, and we have staff that specialize in different areas, government records, audio, visual collections. I'm the manuscript archivist, so I work with the public and try to solicit collections that I think will be good additions to our overall manuscript collection. And it's located in the North Dakota Heritage Center in capital of Bismarck on the Capitol grounds. It's 612 East Boulevard Avenue. If someone wants to research something, they would come to the Heritage Center and then make their way to, what do you call the reading room? Yep, in the reading room. And what's that sound I hear over there? Um, I think it might be the garage door to our truck bay. <laughs> because we are, where are we? We're in Accessions Holding, which is sort of a um, rarely used room where we store collections that come in or collections that need processing but aren't a priority. So we're kind of in like the backup, backup, backup meeting room because the meeting room was full today. So there's a bunch of sounds. There's um, like heating equipment down here and... Got white too, big white heating, plumbing, things on a cement block wall. And we've got some metal uh, shelving with all of these... What do you call those boxes technically? A uh, 
bank box or a... Yeah, banker boxes or, I don't know, one cubic foot. That's how we measure it here in archives. Um, and then this is kind of where the equipment goes to die too. So when we came in, we saw a bunch of obsolete audiovisual equipment. We, yeah. we kind of take that equipment as we can just for parts or yeah. um, because we have so many formats, we may need it someday. So we're here today because, well, I just met you last week because I got this fantastic email from you. I was super excited. I'll let you tell listeners why you reached out to me. So I've been a big time listener and fan of the podcast. And as an archivist, I'm always interested in hearing, learning, and preserving stories of North Dakota that are unique research that is groundbreaking or just should be preserved and made accessible. And I view your podcast as a re any other research collection just in a different format. So we have um, collections here of researchers for the last 120 years, you know, and so I was really excited to maybe pioneer a project to move that research into more modern formats. So yours would be the first podcast that we're preserving. Yeah, we're just, we're really excited to be part of this project and hopefully help steward the podcast and your research into the future. I think archives and researchers have sort of a partnership. And so our role is to help people understand that, you know, your research exists. And then if they want to come and build on the research in the future, they don't have to reinvent the wheel. My first thought was that you were interested in season two, but it sounds like you want everything. We do want everything. I think that what you have with your podcast and the fellowship that you've developed and the interest in these cases has really galvanized people and brought people together. And it's just a new format and a new phenomenon that I think should be recorded. I think people have the misconception that archives collect diaries and things from 100 years ago, but we're trying to move into the future and be current and preserve today's culture, events, research, so that people 100 years from now have a good idea of what life was like now. Another thing I wanted to ask you about was something you told me in regards to a better search for Barbara Cotton. You told me Friday that you've done some research or invest, uh, yeah, you've done some investigation or research of your own on my behalf without me even knowing it. I really tried to do what I could. I, I realized here in the state archives um, that we have some resources that I thought might be helpful or of interest or relevant to Barbara Cotton's case. And so I've spent a few lunch breaks looking through our photo collections and looking through some oil and gas collections, you know, pretty much anything that I thought might have a breadcrumb of information. It was pretty fun and I felt like I was part of the greater good, but unfortunately didn't have anything worth sharing, but I'll keep looking. I'd be excited to see any photographs that might exist in the archives from Williston around the time Barbara went missing, 8081. Do you think we could snoop into that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And we have a collection, a Williston-based collection that is huge and really valuable and um, has a lot of history. It was by a photographer named Bill Shimori. He owned a newspaper and ran a newspaper there, and he was a historian. And so he was basically at every city event he went to the 4-H shows. He went to every parade, basketball game. So we have his collection of negatives, prints, pretty much every format upstairs along with his research. I know for certain that there are photos of Williston in the 1980s. I don't know offhand if there's anything related to Barbara Cotton. Actually, I do. <laughs> I, uh, I looked through the collection. That was one of the first things that I did. Um, and there are a few things from the 80s 
there are some aerial views, there's some parade scenes, but nothing really related to Barbara. He, since he was a reporter, there were quite a few photos in the collection, you know, of crime scenes and automobile accidents and that type of thing. So I was really hopeful that there would be something, but I think he had phased out of that type of photography by that point in his life. Yeah, I would guess there's, I don't know, several hundred thousand images, and we actually have an intern working on it right now. But it's of great research value just because it, it documents the history of Williston so well. So what do you say? Should we go snooping around uh, looking for photographs of 1981 Williston? That sounds like fun. So, okay. Um, so And actually, this is just a part of the collection. There's more boxes, too. But that's the, like the research portion of it. Um, I'll just show you a done box if you have a second. Here's prints. Can we look in this box? Yeah. 120 and 35 millimeter prints. And then the ones on the end, those are all prints. Oh, are these here? Yeah. Wow, 2000. Yeah, this just... So, yeah, the collection spans from the 1870s, must have passed away. I want to thank Lily Trefilio of Beach Bunny for joining us briefly on A Better Search for Barbara. Many thanks to that cool cat with the awesome laugh, Ike Turner, for joining me in Bismarck. And thanks for all the great tunes in Season 5. Finally, a shout-out to Emily Kavishta of the North Dakota State Archives. I'll be back there soon to explore more about Williston, oil companies, browse photos of 1981 Williston, and much, much more. But most of all, thanks to you for listening. Without a listener, there is no podcast named A Better Search for Barbara. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.